Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to cover all 27 verses of this wonderful chapter together this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 will be in verses 1 to 27. Uh, anybody in here run the race yesterday? I actually want a show of hands. You deserve honor if you did. Even if it was just the half, even if it was just the one mile kids run. Anybody run the race yesterday? Where? Okay, over here. Yeah, okay. And there, yeah, Carly did. Yeah. Congratulations, guys, for as far as you made it, for whatever your time was. The, the winning time yesterday I saw was the entire marathon, 26.2 miles in two hours, 27 minutes. That means running a mile in just over five and a half minutes. That's half the time it takes me to run a mile. And then running another mile in five and a half minutes. After which you run another one. Then another, then another, then another for 26 miles. It's insane. Did you know, though, that that pace that won our marathon yesterday was a full minute per mile slower than the world record pace set last fall by Iliud Kipchoge of Kenya? That brother ran a marathon in Berlin in just over two hours. 26.2 miles in two hours. I read a New York Times spread on this guy this week with a video insert into this article showing this new feature that's now been added to all the world's major marathons. It's a treadmill pre-programmed with that guy's world record marathon pace. And those who pay good money to enter those marathons are also invited to run on that treadmill for as long as they can make it before they collapse at his pace as long as they can make it. The, the, the video shows what happens when normal mortals try to run at Elliot Kipchoge's pace. Uh, these are actually people with actual running gear and like numbers stapled to their chest, not like joggers like me. These are real runners. And they get on there and you watch them, poor things. They look miserable for as long as they can make it. And then bam, they hit that treadmill and zoom, they fly off to it onto this gymnastics mat on the back. It, I, I recommend, especially if you feel like you need a little pick-me-up for today, something, uh, something to lighten the mood this afternoon, Go find that video and watch people try to keep up with him for one mile, two miles, much less 26. How do you get to where you can run like that? How does a runner get to that pace? Well, it helps to have good genes, and he certainly got some. But good genes aren't enough. You want to run like that, you need relentless, focused discipline. When Kipchoge is training, it is his full-time job. He goes away from his home to a special location with a team all around him to support him. He keeps a routine down to the minute, from the moment he wakes up to the moment he goes to bed. He runs twice every single day on a carefully managed weekly schedule. Every meal is carefully planned for its advantages in his running career. It's not an exotic diet. I mean, it's interesting to me that he doesn't, he doesn't do any of the, the kind of high dollar 
supplements you might expect people to be into, the kind of things that are, they're probably trying to sell you if you show up at one of these marathons and run on one of these treadmills. There's probably some swag that they're giving out trying to convince you that if you only had the right drink or had the right food, you could run like this guy too. No, he just eats fruit, vegetables, some small, modest meats. That's it. But as much as what he does eat, it's what he doesn't eat. His diet is disciplined. It's defined as much by what he denies himself as what he permits. He didn't have pizza like I did for dinner on Monday or French toast like I had for breakfast on Wednesday. He doesn't eat burgers like I had for lunch on Friday or ice cream like I had after my kids went to bed just last night. Sorry, guys. He denies himself all of these things that he could have if he wanted. They're good things. He denies himself because he wants something more. Because his whole life is lived with a specific goal in mind. And the only things that make it into his life are the things that push that goal forward. What is his goal? Well, it's to win every marathon he runs in. It's to set world records. It's to do exactly what he's done. He's disciplined because that goal matters to him. Uh, Hanging over the whole chapter we're going to look at this morning is Paul's image of a runner who knows what he's running for, who's given his whole life to bringing home the crown. At the end of chapter 9, that's the, that's the metaphor Paul gives us for his life. He runs as someone who wants to win the prize. He boxes, not as someone shadow boxing the air, but as someone who wants every punch to land. His whole life is live with the discipline aimed at his specific goals. What is your life aimed at? What do you want to achieve? What do you deny yourself in order to attain what goal that matters to you more? I want to read for you the whole chapter I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1 and read to verse 27. Paul writes, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Are, you, are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you're the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, 
Is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I'd rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, although not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is God's word. You can be seated. This chapter falls in a section of the letter where Paul is trying to push the Corinthians to stop insisting on their own rights and start thinking about their brothers and sisters. Last week, this section got its start in the the chapter that Shaka preached to us from about idol meat, where Paul pushed people who knew it was okay to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols, to not just think about whether it was okay to do that, but to think about whether that would help their brothers and sisters who weren't so confident about it. He pushed them to set aside what was their right under God to do, to prioritize instead what would help the people that that they shared life with in this church. Now he's showing them in chapter 9 that he takes his own medicine. He is living by that same disciplined approach to life. He's living, in other words, like an athlete who's disciplining himself to focus his whole life on the goal that matters most. But there is a place where his analogy 
to the athlete and the prize that they seek breaks down. And he calls it out near the end of the chapter in verse 25. They do what they do to receive a perishable wreath, a crown of victory that eventually just withers and fades. But we do what we do to achieve an imperishable wreath. What Paul is after, what he wants me and you to be after, are imperishable goals. Do you have those? How big are the goals you have for your life? What are you aiming for? And will it fit in this world? What should we learn from Paul about what our lives should be for? One sentence this morning, two points. What can we learn from Paul? To give up what cannot last. To gain what will not fade. We can learn from Paul to give up what will not last, point one. To gain what will not fade, point two. We must learn from Paul to give up what can't last. Do you notice in this opening section, Paul is picking up where he left off, as I've already said, pushing the strong to sacrifice their right to eat meat by showing all the rights that that he sacrificed willingly for the sake of his ministry. But at first, it doesn't seem like that's what he's doing. I mean, the first 14 verses is him making a case, and I mean like a serious case, a really powerful case for why he ought to be paid for the work that he's doing among them and other churches that he's serving. In fact, in the first 14 verses, he acts kind of like a lawyer. He's doubling down on his rights, showing evidence after evidence for the fact that he ought to get something materially to compensate him for all the spiritual work that he's been doing. It's a case that's comprehensive. Starts in verse 7 with common sense. He's like, well, uh, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? If you're out there putting your life on the line for the Roman Empire, don't you think that Rome uh, is going to offer you something to eat? Put some protein in your belly to make your muscles strong and help you to carry through through difficult battles? Of course. A soldier has to bring his own meat along. What about planters or farmers as they watch over what they grow, as they pay close attention to the conditions to make sure that their plants have everything they need to grow and thrive and bear fruit? They do that because they know they get to eat some of that when it comes. What about a shepherd who who spends his time making sure that his flock is protected and provided for and well-fed? That shepherd knows that when the time comes and he gets thirsty or hungry, he gets to milk his flock and drink from what they provide. It only makes sense, Paul says in verse 7. And then he moves to the law. Same principle comes out of what Moses has written. He cites from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, where, where uh, an ox is not to be muzzled when it's working. Take that muzzle off. Let him eat while he works. He's serving you. You may as well provide for him. And then Paul says, it's not about oxen, right? I mean, God cares a lot more for us than he cares for oxen. Basically using the principle that a lesser applies to a greater. That if God was so concerned that an oxen that's working should, that if an ox should be able to eat for his work, how much more an apostle? Or as he puts it in verse 11, if we've sown spiritual things, more valuable, more lasting and precious things, is it too much if we reap material things from you too? Then he goes to the temple, verse 13. 
The fact that in the temple, the priests who serve there get to eat some of the meat that's brought in as, as sacrifice. That's just how it's set up. God wants it to work that way. They ought to be able to, to eat for their labor. And then to, to round it off as if all that wasn't enough, he goes to the words of Jesus himself. Doesn't quite quote them here, but says, the Lord commanded this. Probably thinking about Luke chapter 10 or Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus says that the laborer deserves his wages. One way or another, the, the, the point that Paul's making is strong and it's clear. He ought to be paid for what he's done for them. The work is worth it, it's spiritual and precious and lasting. The work is difficult. It consumes all of his time and effort. It's impactful. It's changing their lives. And it should matter them most of all. That's his case. But the turning point, guys, surely you notice this as we were reading it. The turning point, the striking conclusion, what he's building to in verse 15 is a huge but. I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. I don't care about what I have coming to me. That's not my point. It's like Paul has been playing with a little toddler and he's got this build, uh, all of these blocks and he's just building a tower for the joy of knocking it over. And the bigger that tower gets, the more impressive its fall, the more eye-catching and enjoyable its fall. This whole case that he spends 14 verses building He's only building so that he can knock it down in verse 15 so that they'll notice when he says, I didn't insist on any of that. I didn't take what was mine by right. I gave it up willingly, he says. It's important to know that he's not actually arguing with them here when he, when he lays out the case for giving him money. They would have been fine paying him. In fact, I mean, his whole case, it just assumes that they're agreeing with him step by step. That's why he's using these rhetorical questions. If they didn't agree with him, he'd have to, he wouldn't be able to use those rhetorical questions. He knows that they would answer yes, yes, yes at every step along the way. He's preaching to the choir all the way until he tells a church that's all too obsessed with what they're getting from this life. A church that's divided over status and money and who's got the best reputation. All until he tells that church that he isn't interested in what he deserves here and now. He is all too happy to set his rights aside for a greater reward, to use his language. It is his reward here and now to do all this work for free in light of the reward that he expects to get then. Let me stop right there. Let's just reflect for a second. What are we supposed to take so far from what Paul's been saying, from his example that he's laying out? What is it that we should be learning so far? Well, I think there are two things worth talking about here. I think there's an important point to take from the point he's not making <laughs> and an important point to take from the point that he is making. So let me start with the important point we should take from the point he's not making. And it's this. It is a good and a right thing for a church to financially support the ministry of the gospel. To financially support those who feed them and lead them with that gospel and those who go out from them to do that work in other places where it isn't available yet. I, this chapter is the most comprehensive case that Paul makes for the importance of supporting those who minister to you. 
It's a case that he makes other, in other places and other parts of the scriptures make the same case, but this is the most robust defense of it. And because it doesn't come up that often, when it does come up, I think it's healthy for us as a church to pay attention to what that case really is, uh, to, to what it is that's guiding us in our life together as a church and how we handle these things, which is to say, we may as well talk about the elephant in this passage. I have a friend who was recently preaching through 1 Corinthians, and when he got to this passage, he said to his church, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I stood up here and talked to you guys for 45 minutes about sex. Now I'm up here about to talk to you about money. And not just money, but your money. And not just your money, but some of your money becoming my money. <laughs> Can we just go back and talk about sex again? <laughs> a little awkward. Uh, but so important because the Bible goes here and we go where God's word takes us. So several things that I think are worth saying from these verses about supporting full-time gospel workers here in our church, on our staff, uh, and those who go out from us through our church around the world. Let me give you three things I think we should say from what Paul has said here. The first thing I want to say to you is thank you. Let me say it again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being such a generous and faithful church. As one of those who is supported by your generosity and speaking for the others who are supported by your generosity, I want to thank you guys for being a church that is so generous and so faithful to what God says right here and throughout his word. Uh, because you are. There is, a, there is a reason that we only talk about money when it comes up in a series we were already in the middle of. We don't have to go there randomly. We don't have to beat this drum because as a normal part of your life as a Christian, you are being so faithful to what the Bible teaches on this. And our family is especially grateful. We feel so cared for by your generosity and the leadership of our elders. We have a roof over our heads. We have clothes on our back. We have food in our bellies. We have so much more than that. And on top of it all, I get to spend my days and my weeks thinking about this church and what we're facing and about you and what you're needing and about God's word and how it helps you without the stress hanging over my head of whether I'll be able to feed my children or have what we'll need to grow them up into adulthood. I get to do, in other words, the work I believe in most for the people I love most in all the world, which is to say an almost unimaginable privilege uh, because you have been so faithful and generous in your giving. So thank you. That's thing number one to say. The second thing to say about this is that you should thank God that you have the opportunity to give to this work. If you're thinking about your money biblically, through the lenses that the Bible gives you for what you ought to do with it, then you will be grateful for the chance to put your money towards something so precious, to something so bankable as gospel ministry. There is no safer investment in all the world. It's almost like a kind of justifiable insider training on a, uh, insider trading, I mean, on a, on a massive scale. <laughs> if you could have seen into the future in 1998 and you had a chance to invest in Google and you knew exactly what Google would be in 2023, how much would you have invested Maybe a better way to say it would be, how much would you have held back? Is that a bet that you would have hedged? Or would you have gone all in with every dollar you had? 
If you knew where Google was headed, you would have gone all in, and you know it. And God has spoken to us in his word about where all of this is headed. Every time his word goes out, he says, it comes back bearing the fruit he intends it to bear. And his word is even now going out all over the world. One day it will reach to every tribe and every nation on every corner of the world. And wherever it goes, it doesn't return empty. It brings new life where there was spiritual death. It brings health and maturity where there was weakness and infancy. It is building his word right now. It is building an indestructible building, an unending kingdom. And on the smallest scale, it's building us up right here at Edgefield, right even now and week after week and day after day as his word comes out of this pulpit and bounces around these walls and in all of your conversations and in all of your friendships, the word just goes out and it echoes and it keeps going. And one day through the hope that's communicated in this word, all of us will stand before the throne of the God who made us in great joy. And we will worship him together forever. We know where this ends in a world entirely new by the power of the, of the gospel that we preach. So that means this is a work that can't fail. And for now, you get to be in on it. You get to invest in it. I mean, don't we, where we have choices of what to do with our money, aren't we always putting our money in what we believe to be valuable? On the smallest scale to the largest scale where we use it, it's because we think it will bear fruit. So obviously it would be right for Christians to support gospel ministry as generously as they can because that shows what that ministry is to them. You should thank God for the opportunity because it is a privilege to support what cannot fail. And the last thing that I'll say, based on what Paul says here, is that you should seek pastors and missionaries, gospel workers who work here or who go out. You should seek gospel workers who would do this work whether they're paid for it or not. Gospel work done properly is not a career path. It is not a career it's simply a chance to do more of what they're already doing anyway when you offset the cost of their life so that they can focus all their time and effort here. And I've often heard people say, as you're raising up missionaries to go out from a church, you wanna make sure that, that that person who's gonna go out from you to the other side of the world is already doing evangelism right here. If they're not doing evangelism here where there's no language barrier, where the culture is shared, where it's just so easy, there's no chance they'll start doing evangelism on the other side of the world. There's nothing magical about crossing the Atlantic. That's so wise. The same thing goes for, for the gospel work that happens here. If, if, if someone's not doing it for free because they just believe it's worth the effort, you should never pay them to do it. It's one thing to say that pastors, gospel workers, should get their living from the gospel, as Paul puts it here. It's another thing to say that they should preach the gospel to make a living. There's a world of difference between those two sentences. And you can pray. One of the ways we can serve our church is to pray that God will continue to hold us all in this trust 
where those who are on staff of our church or going out from our church put themselves at the disposal of the church, make themselves vulnerable, pull out of the game of negotiating for higher pay and leveraging for better offers. We're not in that game. We trust you. And where churches then do everything they can to provide generously for the people who serve them with that trust. Let's pray that God will continue to deepen our trust in one another and to continue to bear fruit from the ministries that we're doing together. All right, that's an important point from the point that Paul makes in order to make another point that really matters to him. That's our point from the point he's not actually making ultimately in this chapter. Now, I want to quickly, before we move to our big second point, draw your attention to the point he is making and what we stand to learn from it. We should be, here it is, we should be willing and even eager to give up what we could have in this world to advance goals that matter way more. That's the kind of discipline Paul has in mind in verses 24 to 27, where he uses this image of the runner who's running or the boxer who's boxing. It's what he has in mind by self-control, as he mentions there. His body, he has to discipline because he knows his body wants comfort. He knows his body wants pleasure. He knows his body wants a security it can depend on here and now. And he knows all those things are just going to slow him down. He knows he's going to be tempted to put his heart into a bigger and bigger share of what this perishable world has to offer. It's so real. It's so tangible. It seems so rewarding. He knows that. How easy it would be to want more and more and more here and now. So Paul says, I discipline myself. I keep my body under control because I don't want to be disqualified after I spend my life preaching. Like Kipchoge, I mean, there'd be nothing wrong with that guy having a milkshake every now and then. He's got as much right to anybody as pizza or a bowl of ice cream. He, he's got the means to afford it. He's very successful at what he does. But he chooses to discipline himself. He chooses not to do what he could easily do. He, he chooses to keep it simple. Because however rewarding it might be to eat some ice cream, there's another reward that matters more to him. His goals are bigger than the quick hitting pleasure he can get from a nightly bowl of ice cream. So are Paul's. So what are you aiming for? And what are you willing to give up along the way? I think some of us need to be challenged to actually aim for discipline in the first place. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a basic Christian goal. It's something we ought to want and to grow in. That self-control is often going to look like self-denial. Saying no to even good things so that you can say yes to better things. Where does that happen for you? Are you living your life like an athlete? With goals that you've set? And sacrifices that you're making to follow through on them? I don't know that it's ever been easier for anyone anywhere to drift through life the way we can. Living in a, in a relatively prosperous culture with more opportunities for distraction than anyone's ever had before. You don't even have to be strategic in what you watch next. You can just stream the next recommended for you episode. And for some of us, spiritual maturity is going to look like grabbing hold of life, planning carefully, 
and aiming ourselves at something, not being content to just, to just drift along, living for a lifetime of nights and weekends. Others of us won't have any trouble with the discipline part, but need to follow Paul towards something that's worth all that effort. You know, Paul, it's not just discipline for its own sake that Paul has in mind here. He doesn't care how far you can actually run. He's just using this as a metaphor. He's not telling you that spiritual maturity is measured in miles. He doesn't care how fast you can climb that corporate ladder. He doesn't care how wisely you've invested or how carefully you've saved or how perfectly you've planned for your retirement. He doesn't doesn't actually care about any of that. You might be a model of self-control, but aiming all that discipline and all that self-denial at one or another form of perishable wreath that isn't worth the effort you're giving it. Friends, it it isn't wrong to enjoy good things in this life. God has filled up the world full of things for us to enjoy. We enjoy his goodness when we enjoy the good things he made, when it's working properly. It's not wrong. Paul enjoyed good things. He was content with much and with little. The question is not whether you can enjoy good things that are perishable. The question is what are you aiming for? What are you planning toward? What do you scheme about? What drives you? Is that perishable or imperishable? Often I'll kid around with friends about how easy it is to go down a consumer research rabbit hole, you know? some big purchase you're wanting to make there's always some other blog review you could find to make sure that it's worth the effort worth the money exactly what you're looking for do you bring that kind of discipline put in that kind of effort train that level of focus on goals that are imperishable That's where Paul wants to take us next. Point number one is what we can learn from Paul is to gladly give up what can't last any or can't can't last possibly. It's going to go anyway. It's perishable. We should be willing to give that up. No problem. Point number two we can learn from Paul is we want to gain what will not fade. We want that discipline aiming at wreaths that are not perishable. Paul has already hinted a couple times in what we've already looked at, at what, what he's aiming for, at what drives him and what he's doing without. But it comes right to the forefront in the paragraph that stretches from verse 19 to verse 23. Let's read that again together. Paul says, though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all. Why? That I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. Why, Paul? In order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Why? That I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Why, Paul? That I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak. Why? That I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, verse 22. That by all means, I might save some. And in case you didn't get the point yet, verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. You see his point? (laughs) If that isn't clear, I don't know. He needs some new glasses. He disciplines himself for one consuming goal. It guides his whole life. Everything he doesn't do, everything he does do, it's all so that he can win more. It's all so that he can share with them in the blessings of the gospel. That is his life. As many people as possible 
coming to see what he has seen in Jesus. Knowing him, trusting him, loving him, and obeying him. Paul can do without anything if it leads to more worshipers of Jesus who are saved from the judgment to come. For Paul, that's the prize that won't fade. That is the imperishable wreath that he's living, running, boxing for. That's what life is all about, connecting people to Jesus. Let me walk you through what he's saying and then where that challenge lands for us. When Paul mentions off all these groups, there, there are specific groups that are on his mind and often in his ministry, not just in Corinth, but everywhere that he went. He, he mentions Jews. He mentions those who are under the law, which is probably uh, ethnic Gentiles who had adopted Judaism as their own religion and were following the law, even though they weren't born into it. He mentions Gentiles, who would be those who are not living according to the law of Moses, and to the weak, who are really on his mind in this chapter, because he was talking about them in chapter 8. Those are the uh, p- believers who, whose consciences are still unsettled. They aren't sure exactly what God has freed them from, uh, from in his grace and are nervous about misstepping. That's who Paul has in mind. And he's saying with each of these groups, I've been to them. When I'm talking to Jews about Jesus, I'm happy to follow the regulations I grew up with. Doesn't bother me at all. When I'm talking to those who are under the law, I stay right in step with what the law requires. When I go and talk to somebody who's outside the law, I don't follow those laws. I don't need them anymore. Jesus has fulfilled them. He set me free from them. I'm fine to live like a Gentile where God's word doesn't tell me not to. And to the weak, I'll give up anything. They think I might need to give up. I'll do whatever. Or as he puts it, I'll become all things to all people. When he says all things to all people, he doesn't mean that he's adding layers to the gospel to package it up in a style that will make things more interesting or persuasive. And he's made it clear already in this letter that's not what he's about. Back in chapter 2, he says, when I came to you, there was one thing I wanted to talk to you about. I preached Christ and him crucified. That's all I ever, that's all I ever preached. I, I kept it simple on purpose. I didn't want you to mistake it for something else. I didn't want to come offering you what you already wanted when what you needed was Jesus. He's all I talked to you about. That's what he says in chapter 2. He's not, he's not taking that back here. Another way to put that would be, it's not like he's saying that, that, that in my ministry, it's kind of like applying Jesus is kind of like applying children's Tylenol. You know, if you go to, to the, to the drugstore, there's a whole wall of children's Tylenol in all types of flavors, right? You've got the grape flavor, which is probably the best, cherry, a couple other fruits, and bubble gum which is a little more controversial, but works for some kids. The point is the medicine works no matter what. You, you just got to know your kid, you know, what flavor they like best. You get the flavor that they like. Sometimes I think Paul's words have been misinterpreted as if that's what he's saying here. That, you know, Jesus will go down no matter what. But, so what we really want to offer is let's find out the flavor of the moment, the flavor for that person. We'll give them that, and then Jesus will go down even if they don't recognize it. You can't get Jesus that way. The only way to get in on Jesus is to know why you need him. You have to know that you're a sinner. You have to know that because of your sin, you deserve to be punished for it. You have to know that Jesus came here precisely to be punished for your sin if you'll trust in him. And that through Jesus, you can be set free from all of that and be given new life as real and as lasting as his life. You have to know that to get in on him. So Paul's not cutting any of those edges off. He's not offering a new flavor that will hide the bitter taste of that message. 
No, when, when Paul says he's all things to all people, it's because he wants to blend in so that Jesus will stand out. The point is, I will, I will do anything you need me to do so that you don't notice me. So that when I talk about Jesus, he is all that you notice. He wants to get out of the way so Jesus can become crystal clear. I think a wonderful model of this has been some of the women even in our own church who have served in Muslim majority contexts. Women who know that they are free in Christ to wear long pants if they want and to put nothing on their hair. But who in a Muslim majority context, in order to have the chance to talk about Jesus, are willing to wear dresses and to cover with scarves. Those scarves don't mean anything to the women who have gone out from our church. It's not like they think that makes God any happier with them than when they didn't have a scarf over their head. But they're like, well, of course I'll wear a scarf if we get to talk about Jesus. If, if me coming in here, you're not noticing me, then you get a chance to notice him. All things to all people means I'll put up with anything if it means removing obstacles to talking about him. That's what it meant for Paul. That's what it should mean for us. So if you're a Christian, a central goal for your life is to help other people connect with Jesus. That is an imperishable good. When you get to do that, you are grabbing hold of a wreath that won't ever die. What can we learn from Paul's example when he became all things to all people that will help us pursue that imperishable goal ourselves? I'm going to leave you with three quick things, and I mean real quick. Three things we should learn from Paul about our responsibility to connect other people to Jesus. First, let's focus on Christ and not on ourselves. These days, I think Paul's all things to all people approach to ministry might even sound a bit hypocritical. This dude was clearly a chameleon. He adjusted himself all over the place just to fit in. That seems antisocial for some of the most important values of our time where it's, where it's believed that the best thing you've got to offer to the world is what you have in you. Your goal is to figure out who you are, your unique spark, and then display it for the world so that they can benefit from it and affirm it. Paul's like, nah, not me. Like, I don't want you noticing me. I will be whatever you want me to be. I am happy for you to have expectations for what I should look like. I'll take it. As long as you let me talk to you about Jesus, he'll wear anything. He'll take nothing. He'll follow whatever rules. He'll fit in anywhere with anyone if he can. Just so long as he gets the chance to preach Christ and him crucified. How easy is it for us to spin our wheels, to spend our time and even our money building an image we want to project that's all about us? How easy to be swept along stressing over what we want to be known for and whether the right message is out there. Can you see Paul is done with that? He's over it. When people think of Paul, he wants them thinking of Jesus. How about you? Second thing I learned from Paul in these verses, let's not be picky about who we'll love. In our experience, sometimes it's hard to talk about Jesus with somebody who's not like you in one way or another besides Jesus, you know? Like, do you really need to share sports in common 
or parenting in common or some hobby or taste in books or music in common so that you can actually carry a conversation through a mealtime. Not to mention bigger differences that can separate us like race and class and education and country of origin and all the rest. It's easy, in other words, to treat Jesus sometimes like, like he's, he's necessary but not a sufficient condition for a good friendship. We might need to have him, but we need him plus something else. But Paul is an equal opportunity friend. He wants Jesus for everybody, which means he will spend time with and on anybody. And he'll do anything he can to connect with them. If what that will mean is that at the end, he gets to pull back the veil and show them the beauty of Jesus. How picky are you in your friendships? And finally, like Paul, let's take the initiative toward one another. Everybody wants, everybody really needs deep connection in a Christian community. That is a crucial pillar of support for any life as a Christian. And that's what a church is for. And it's wonderful when you get to enjoy it, isn't it? I mean, you need people who listen to you well, people who know you deeply, people who understand what you've been through, what you're going through now, people who know what you're hoping for can help you get there. But if you've been a part of a church for any amount of time, you also know that a church is always on the way, always still on the way, not there yet, far from perfect. And our lives as individuals, I mean, they shift in a whole host of directions. There's always an ebb and a flow to everybody's experience of any local church. And what can easily happen is that you can start to feel disconnected for one reason or another, you can feel the temptation to pull back into a mode where you're evaluating rather than really participating in the life of the church you belong to and kind of take a wait and see posture. When will they notice who will come for me? You may be dealing with that even now. And I won't tell you if you're feeling that now, I won't tell you that you don't deserve better than you've gotten. That may very well be true. I'll simply appeal to Paul's example and say, what a a great way to honor Jesus would be to set aside what you think you deserve, what you may really deserve, and take the initiative to invest in others where they are, to go hard after them with the care you hope to receive, to be all things to all people, entering their world, to try to help them see what you've seen in Jesus. And if all of us were doing that, if that's how we all responded to every bit of disconnection any one of us has ever felt, think how well we'd all be cared for. <laughs> if we're all kind of competing with each other to see who can pursue the other one better, more, with, with, with more focus and more follow through. And even more rewarding than, than, than what we might get out of it, if that's how we love one another. Friends, we will have the opportunity to imitate Jesus At the end of this whole section, Paul says, I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many so that they can be saved. And then he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul's life is just living out what Jesus showed to him. When Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. When Jesus emptied himself and became like us, entered our world so that he could go to the cross for us. When Jesus did all that, knowing that eventually God would highly exalt him, that one day he would have an imperishable reward in exchange for this perishable life he threw away on purpose. Friends, Eliud Kipchoge this week, he ran another marathon. 
in Boston, he came in sixth place. His goal is perishable if he wins another 10 marathons. That's not enough for Paul. It shouldn't be enough for us. How big are your goals for your life? Will they fit in this world? Or are you aiming yourself at what will never fade? Let's pray. Father, we ask you to give us this focus and a willingness to set aside anything that might slow us down in our attempt to imitate our Savior. Help us to pursue each other with relentless, disciplined focus and with the message of Jesus at the heart of our friendships here and outside of our church. And we pray this for his name's sake. Amen.